Welcome to Launched. I'm Charlie Chapman, and today I'm excited to bring you the prolific indie iOS app designer and developer, Shahab Maboub. Shahab, welcome to the show. Hey, man. Thanks for having me on. No, thank you for coming on. This is, I feel like you're one of the people that I sort of uh, became friends with, like before actually launching uh, Dark Noise. And so I feel like, you know, we go way back, which in, in my parlance is like, what, six months or something like that. But I, it's really nice to actually finally get to like talk to you in person because we've been sort of talking and hanging out on Twitter for a while now. Yeah, definitely. Like talking on Twitter comes naturally, but we rarely get to actually talk in person and we live in different time zones as well, so that's very rare as well. Yeah. So getting to talk over here over the podcast is pretty cool. And the the lack of conferences or WWDC this year uh, kind of makes that even harder. So this this is sort of a fortuitous uh, podcast timing for me that I actually <laughs> have an excuse to get people to talk to me uh, in person or well in vocal person. I don't know whatever you'd call this. Uh, so that's that's I'm very excited about this. Yeah, it would have been pretty cool if we got to hang out at WWDC as well. But yeah, based on the current global events, that was looking more and more unlikely over the past few weeks. But this is still really good as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, hopefully, hopefully next year we get to you. So uh, to kick off this show, I like to, uh, to start off with a little icebreaker from the audience. And so today, uh, Jordan asks, are you a night owl or a morning person? Or uh, I'll give you the option too. You can, you can be both or neither. Um, I feel like I'm more of a morning person. I get a lot of stuff done in the morning and then as the day progresses, I just get more and more bored of what I'm doing <laughs> and then just kind of drift off. And then I just probably doze off quite early as well, which a lot of people on Twitter keep saying, oh, do you ever sleep? But I sleep quite a lot, actually. I just get a lot of work done in the morning and then just chill for the rest of the day. <laughs> That's I mean, that's exactly what I'm like, uh, before having kids, like my most productive time by far was getting up early. Sometimes I would get up early and go to, you know, a coffee shop or a library or something before going to work. And like, those were by far my most productive hours in part because I had a hard stop, you know, like I ran out of time cause I had to go to work. Um, but I was super productive then. And then, and then I had kids and, uh, now I'm never productive. So, you know, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> It's like in the morning, the world hasn't woken up yet. So there's a lot more time to get other stuff done. But then as the day progresses, you're trying to communicate with other people as well and keep up with a lot of admin stuff as well. And then that just kind of takes up time. And as the day progresses, it just gets worse and worse. Yeah. That morning, like before everybody else wakes up, it feels like stolen time. Mm, yeah, definitely. Especially if if you get up before the sun comes up and like, I don't, I don't know if you feel the same way, but like, as the sun starts coming up, you sort of feel this sense of not dread, but you're like, ah, oh, it's almost like you can feel it slipping away from you. Uh, because you know, traffic starts kind of picking up and people are starting to walk around and you're kind of like, ah, oh, the world's up now. Now, like I've lost this sort of glorious moment. Maybe that's what night people feel like at night too, but yeah, exactly. I feel like it's your own time that you get to spend doing what you want to do. And then once you have other people around you doing their activities, it kind of feels like, oh, we're all just living in this thing yeah. together and suddenly it's not my own time anymore. Now I have to share. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, that is interesting because I, I definitely do think that when somebody is uh, super sort of prolific or uh, like like you are, you're known for having a whole bunch of apps and getting a lot of updates out for those apps. I think there's a almost assumed persona that you're, you know, pounding Mountain Dews and Red Bull uh, late into the night hours. So it's kind of interesting to hear that it's actually more like, you know, the contemplative uh, morning as the, the sunrise sort of creeps in through the windows. Gives a very different uh, sort of mindset. Yeah, definitely. I feel like the vibe I gave off on Twitter isn't what I actually am like because um, I don't drink coffee. I'm not your stereotypical programmer. I wouldn't drink energy drinks. I don't um, program late into the night. So I don't really fit the bill per se, but I'm still kind of trying to get stuff done in that time, which is kind of weird as well. <laughs> Not really sure how that works. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I guess I guess it makes sense that for me, this is this is in the morning. So uh, I'm sort of I sort of have the sunrise creeping in through my office window right now. Uh, but I guess that's not the case for you because you are in uh, the UK. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, it's late afternoon. Well, not late afternoon, mid afternoon over here. So um, quite different time zones, I'd say almost half the world across. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, oh, I guess I should I should end the the technically the uh, icebreaker section here. So, if you if you have any questions you'd like to ask me on the show, uh, you can tweet me at launch.fm uh, with the hashtag icebreaker. And I'm starting to actually run uh, run a little low. So, uh, if you have any ideas, definitely definitely shoot them my way, and uh, I might ask a future guest uh, your question on the show. So, before we get into uh, Cosmicast in particular, but really all of your apps. I, I have a bunch of different questions for you there. Um, I want to kind of introduce everybody to to you, Shahab. So um, the questions I ask everybody are, where are you from? Which we sort of already covered. Uh, do you have any formal education related to this stuff? And what was your career like uh, pre, you know, prolific indie app development, I guess? Yeah, um, as we covered, I'm from the UK, um, which... Not many developers seem to be like a lot of people seem to be from the US and there's a few from other places in Europe from what I'm seeing on Twitter. But um, developers from the UK seem to be quite rare, which is probably just like me not coming across anyone recently. But Yeah, that's interesting because in my head, I sort of think of like a big part of the indie iOS scene anyway is UK or European based. Uh, relative to populations. Like, I'm used to things being way more sort of America-centric um, in a lot of circles I run in, but that is a sort of interesting thing I thought is like, how many of these iOS developers that I look up to are explicitly from the UK? Yeah, it would be quite interesting to see some sort of chart that maps out where indie developers are from and like which time zones they exist in as well. Because a lot of people seem to be active on social media and other places all throughout the day so we can't really tell either and it'd be quite cool to see if um the large percentage is based around the main tech hubs around the world so like san francisco or like more recently new york as well but i think there's a shift <laughs> oh yeah we need to do a uh we need to do one of those live maps of uh like what is what is the paul hudson uh training thing where everybody where you're supposed to tweet out your like daily progress 100 days of swift is that 100 days of swift that's correct yeah, yeah. <laughs> we should do we should do a, like one of those live graphs where you can see the dots like throughout the day 
um of just that hashtag <laughs> that cool. yeah okay there's there's a there's a little side project after this yeah i feel like everyone would just be in quarantine <laughs> well yeah that's true <laughs> yeah, there wouldn't be much movement um in terms of like my formal experience for what i know right now in terms of programming i've done a computer science degree at uni which was about five six years ago now it's hard to keep track of time when the days have just become a blur but <laughs> yeah um that was something i did back in uni for the first time and probably the last time because i haven't really touched on any of the uh, concepts that were taught back then like java or c or just algorithms in general so i've got a lot of like theoretical experience um around computer science but a lot of that doesn't really translate to my um, day job uh, making apps and my indie apps either, because like those kind of lower level algorithms and um, data structures aren't things that we as developers would um, really end up using on the front end. It's just things that are probably used in the framework and by the people that create the languages, but like, we'd probably never interface with that. But it's cool to know either way. So like my experience have kind of come from being self-taught instead and doing that like after uni in my spare time. But um, that wasn't really possible until I got my first um, MacBook Air, which is quite slow and really hard to program on. So I don't really use that anymore. I recently upgraded to um, a 16 inch MacBook Pro, which is a lot better and way bigger screen estate because my MacBook Air was like 11 inch. Oh my goodness, yeah. Using Xcode on that was almost impossible. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine going back to that again right now. <laughs> so so I I also uh, joined the 16-inch MacBook Pro train uh, whenever that came out. And it's interesting, I have my 11-inch iPad sitting right next to me, and I'm thinking like, oh man, yeah, programming on that, like, while convenient. Because I actually programmed on the original Surface Pro, uh, which I think was a... I think that was an, a 10... Uh, 10.9 inch screen i don't remember but it was pretty small uh but it was definitely possible but yeah you definitely you definitely feel that difference <laughs> yeah when you have the debugger open and the sidebars open there's no space for the actual code to yeah. exist <laughs> and people are asking for like xcode and ipad and i'm just thinking but it's such a small screen like is it really gonna be worth it but it would be cool to see nonetheless um apart from my uni experience and my self-taught experience. I've been doing a lot of web design and logo design prior to this as well. And that was um, kind of as freelance, but also just for myself as well and more as a learning experience. But um, web design is something I've, and many other developers probably have started with as their first language, like HTML, CSS, those kind of things come naturally as like the first steps because um, they're not really programming languages per se, but more like markup and it's easy to grasp concepts and um, just see results in real time as well, which is something I kind of miss with iOS programming, like um, just being able to quickly change things and have them change out in the real world because app store review times, whilst they have got better, it still takes time. And it'd be nice to see instant results but then again, this kind of teaches us to be a bit more wary and careful about what we do as well. So, like, I used to just rush out my releases, but these days I'd be a bit more careful. Although there's still a lot of bugs that get through, but that's another <laughs> thing. 
Um, logo design is something I've always been interested in as well. And I kind of translated that across to my apps where I use them in app icons and I used to use them in symbols and um, icons, but now I just use SF symbols, which are a lot more convenient and nicer. And Apple did a great job there. Yeah. And since they're like a consistent set of symbols across all the apps, uh, I think that's that's helping create some consistency where it could be confusing whenever whenever people would remove labels like actual text and replace them with an icon. It was nice because it was a little more accessible if English wasn't your language and it took up less space on the screen. But uh, it was it was not often clear and still is not often clear uh, exactly what those symbols do. So the nice thing about SF symbols that Apple released is that like everybody's sort of conforming around a similar set which hopefully over time will create a a more uniform understanding of what certain symbols mean in an app i don't know we'll see i guess yeah definitely (laughs) yeah there's this feeling of consistency across all of the apps that i see on the app store which you don't really get on any other platform it's something that apple have kind of been working on for the past decade where they've slowly been pushing with their human interface guidelines and trying to get people to adhere to little things, which end up making a lot of difference in the end. Even things like the sizing of navigation bars and tab bars, which most people won't change and um, go out of the norm from. But if that was changed, you'd definitely notice the difference. So it's little things, but yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that that Apple was sort of known for from kind of the beginning of the Mac, right. Is, is creating that human interface guideline and, uh, and a whole bunch of videos, I think even to like push sort of, a perspective or a certain like opinion on how software should be designed. And that, that was one of the big differentiators, I think between the Mac and windows is sort of this like opinionated software approach to design. Yeah, definitely. Like, a lot of macOS and iOS, even though they're completely different platforms, even those two end up sharing a lot of the same design language. And I don't really see the same in other platforms. Well, not trying to bash on Windows, but Windows itself is like a mess of different items thrown together. So there's this kind of consistency that I really like about Apple. And it just makes programming and doing things for Apple a lot easier. Because it'd be a lot harder if we were trying to come up with the design language ourselves as developers, rather than just um, putting our ideas to life in something that kind of has been defined already. Yeah, you don't have to decide everything. Yeah, exactly. You can sort of fall back to Apple's decisions on certain things, and then you can defer where you think things should be different. Yeah, precisely. Like, even the basics end up looking good. It doesn't have to look too wild or designed too differently to end up looking like something that stands out, which I think is really cool. Oh yeah, definitely. So are, are you a full-time sort of indie freelancer slash developer or like, do you have, or have you had a sort of career going through some different companies? So after uni, I worked at IBM for about two years where I was working on the Swift team. Um, this wasn't front end. This was uh, when they were doing Swift on the server on the back end. Oh, interesting. So they were doing this for Linux, which was completely different to working on it for Mac and um, iOS. It was kind of like a partnership with Apple where we were talking with um, guys on the Swift team up almost every day. 
and trying to steer the direction of Swift. So we were contributing to like Swift Foundation and oh man, um, a few other like proposals as well. So I learned a lot back then. Like having that as my first job outside of uni and getting to work on such a high profile kind of project was quite eye opening as well. Um, and I, like all of my Git knowledge and source control and agile practices, that all comes from there as well. Like that stuff wasn't really taught at uni, so I kind of had to pick that up as I went along. And I'm really glad it was with IBM because they were kind of strict on code practices and right. how to go about doing things. So that helped like steer my direction towards um, being a programmer that adheres more to teams rather than just an individual who makes messy code and then doesn't use source control. <laughs> Although I still do use messy code and don't sometimes don't use source control, but I try to. So I don't, I don't normally try to get too technical here and I'll, I'll throw chapter markers around this. So feel free to skip this, but I'm very curious what your thoughts for Swift on server are since you sort of had a little bit of uh, early experience with that then. Like, does that feel like a thing that you're interested in? I, do you run servers for for your apps? Um, it's one of those things that is useful when it's there, but most people don't need it. Like, I personally haven't needed it in any of my apps. I use just local storage and try to keep data on device. But um, when, the, when the use case is there, it's great to have one language that does everything. So it's nice having your front end and back end done in Swift. So you don't have to learn a different language just to create a server. And that's like the main advantage I'd say of having Swift on the server is having like websites made where you can make it yourself and you don't need to rely on someone else to do it because the code for it is pretty straightforward in terms of what you already know from Swift. So there's nothing new there. Um, I kind of worked on other cloud-based stuff as well, like um, uh, IBM Watson, which was slightly related because we still use Swift for some parts of it, but that wasn't too much on the server. But it's one of those things that you don't really know what you're doing until you dive in and do it. Right. So like, I didn't really know what I was getting into. And Swift on the server is still such a vague concept to a lot of people. Like, okay, it's Swift. And it's on the server. Okay. But what does that mean? And like, it's great for backends, but it's also great for front-end websites. And that's like the biggest power, I'd say, of having Swift um, across all platforms like Linux as well. Like you can just uh, spin something up and get it out there in a few minutes and you don't have to rely on anything else really probably just hosting which you're going to need for everything anyway so right there's not much overhead either so do you use swift on on server for anything like do you have any like web services that use swift right now um no i don't because i don't really see the need for it for any of my personal projects right but if i did yeah i feel like i'd use that over the alternatives like uh, mysql or any of the other database solutions cool Okay, sorry, that was a little diversion, but uh, I didn't realize that you you worked on that, so that that was interesting. So, so you worked at IBM for a while doing that. Yeah, and then and then after that, I switched to working at a sports company where 
I was an iOS app developer, which I still work for at the moment. That's kind of just front-end and more of a full-stack approach where I oversee everything in the stack from top to bottom with creating the app and steering it in its architectural patterns as well and um, overseeing the Android side of things, which I don't really dabble in, but I still kind of steer the direction. So I've kind of taken on a few different roles with this, but it's still more just iOS app development, which is what I've been doing for a long time. And web design stuff is something I do on the like on the side as freelance projects, but that's like very rare now. Now that there's stuff like CMS, WordPress, um, Wix, and a lot of other services, I don't really see the need as much for um, hand-tailored sites, but they're still great to have like as a design flair. Right, right. So how did you get into indie app development then? Because uh, I have six apps here that I know that are like sort of active right now that, that you make, um, but I know there's a lot more than that. So you've, you've done quite a bit of, uh, of app development over the last uh, few years. So like, how did that sort of start? So I kind of got my first MacBook Air about five, six years ago. And since then, one of the first tools I installed onto that was Xcode, which can only work on Macs rather than on any laptop. And before that, I had a Windows laptop, so I couldn't really do anything with that. Um, since I got my MacBook Air and installed Xcode onto it, I was just kind of playing around with it and seeing what I could do with it because like web development, I just wanted to see what I could do and see instant results as well. Uh, that's kind of like the main thing I like seeing. Front-end changes and just um, cool designs out there in the real world. And it was so accessible back then as well, and it still is. Uh, to just get something out there. There were hardly any steps to get into iOS app development apart from owning an Apple computer of some sort. And um, even having an active developer membership was something that was free as long as you didn't want to put it onto the App Store. So I used to dabble a lot with Xcode and just try to lay out elements onto the mobile screen, see what it looked like. Back then I used to um, use a lot of storyboards and play around with that, but that used to crash all the time. And back then, uh, like if it crashed, I just had to keep opening up Xcode and it still is a mess right now, but back then it was a lot more annoying on the 11 inch <laughs> MacBook Air. Yeah, I would imagine. So I tried to avoid that. And then I tried to do everything through code, which I still do right now. Um, I try to avoid storyboards as much as possible. Um, it's more like, I don't want to have to deal with slow um, opening of files or merge conflicts or things like that. And storyboards kind of make things a bit messy. So from personal experience, I tend to opt for um, programming every part of the design and then just visualizing it in my head as I go along and then running it every now and then on, the sim on a simulator. Um, so that's something I used to dabble with quite a lot. And then I put out my first app, which was a really small kind of um, puzzle board game. It was a lot like threes, but in my head it was like twos. <laughs> it was the same concept, but just in a different way. And that's something I had on the App Store for a long time, but I recently got rid of because it didn't um, 
fit in with all my other products. So that's something that existed back then since like five years, I'd say. Oh, wow. And okay. since then, I've just kind of been putting out like small apps that serve a specific purpose for myself more than anything else. So I put out like a little location-based uh, social network app called... Um, Actually, I don't remember what it's called. It's been a long time. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was a lot like Yik Yak, where you could post anonymous um, social media posts and see them around the world. That was something I did like in a few days and got out there. But that's not something I wanted to carry on with because the overhead of managing and moderating posts was yeah. too much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Yiklat got a lot of bad press as well, and I didn't want to head down that same rabbit hole. Right. Anytime you're dealing with user-generated content that you host, uh, things can get dicey pretty quickly. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's something I made sure not to keep out in the real world for too long. <laughs> Um, since then, I've kind of worked on a few social network apps as well, such as a Reddit client, um, which was probably my first proper app that I made. And I put in a lot of like design flair in that. But a lot of it, looking back right now, it looks quite bad and messy and it doesn't fit the iOS design guidelines at all. <laughs> but it was quite cool back then to play with. So... Like, I've kind of been making small things along the way, but since then I've tried to um, put my thoughts into more of something that a lot of people would end up using rather than just myself or a small subset of people. And that's why I've got, like, notes apps and podcast apps right now rather than um, the small games or things like that. So do you, yeah. do you have any idea, like, the number of apps you've published in the store? Um, I think it's close to 10, probably, Man. or more. It's probably more. <laughs> <laughs> Over about five years. But a lot of them have been quite small things. <laughs> yeah, they've been small things, I'd say. Like, I made a sentiment analysis app where you can paste in um, any kind of message and it'll tell you whether it's positive or negative and which parts are positive and should be changed, uh, which parts are uh, negative and should be changed and um you could do the same from safari as well so it had a share sheet so like every app i've kind of made has tried to incorporate some kind of new technology that i've learned along the way um so like share sheets or ipad support um dark mode etc uh, those kind of things i've kind of learned along the way and now in my apps i try to add all of them in um but yeah it tends to be a lot of work trying to do all of that as one person yeah it's interesting so like uh if you're familiar with underscore david smith the uh app developer who's been around since i mean the beginning and was sort of known throughout all the circles as the guy who'd like pump out apps like he'd come up with an idea and he'd just push it out i think even more so maybe than than what you were doing since that was like his full-time job but uh one thing i've always wanted to ask him which i'm, I'm going to ask you now i guess is how do you deal with having that many apps out in the store? Uh, I know like you sort of call them over time, like you were just talking about as they, they sort of age out, but like um, that feels like that's a lot of things to manage. 
Yeah, it kind of is a lot of things to manage. Um, I tend to dedicate a few days a week to each of my apps, depending on how they're performing. So my most popular app will get like, let's say three or four days of the week and I'd work on that and then uh, push out an update to the app store. And then the next day I'll work on something that's getting a little less traction and push out an update immediately after I finish working on that one. And I make sure to carry on doing this like on a weekly basis so that I don't fall behind on something. That makes sense. Uh, sometimes I put way more priority on some though. And that ends up with like 10 updates in like the space of three or four days. And that's just um, overshadowing all the other apps. But then again, it does depend a lot on what is getting traction and what is getting interest from other users already. So if people aren't giving that much attention to one of my apps, that's probably not going to see that much updates over the next few weeks because it kind of just isn't worth my time either where I could put it into something else. Right. So how do you, mm-hmm. how do you like track all of your tasks? Do you have, uh, I, I think I remember you're a pretty heavy things three user, right? Yeah, that's correct. I still use it to this day. Um, I have all, all of my apps as separate projects. Okay. And inside each one, I have subheaders for different tasks, um, select things to do, um, updates to do, my update notes, um, the press and promo to contact and reach out to, and all sorts of other things which I find are related to that app, which I need to get through. And I just keep ticking things off as I go along. Um, a lot of my update notes are only made possible and only made um, lengthy because I keep track of them. Like if I tried doing them after I made an update, there's no way I would remember that. <laughs> So I try to like keep track of everything. Yeah. Like if you're bouncing between different apps throughout the week, uh, I can, I can imagine doing that. Cause like I have, you know, the context within the day or whatever, but, mm-hmm. uh, I would, I mean, I can barely keep track of the things that I've done in between releases for my single app. Uh, I can't imagine trying to keep track of a whole bunch of different apps, uh, <laughs> that you're working on throughout the week. Yeah, exactly. So having a list of all the things is pretty cool to do because, Otherwise, there's no way anyone's memory is that good. And right. o- over time, I tend to like purge part of the list as well. Like, if it hasn't been touched for, let's say, a few weeks, then I know I'm not going to touch it like going forward. And there must be a reason as to why I haven't touched it yet. So I try to keep it streamlined as much as possible, but it does end up growing quite a lot as well. Yeah. So as you were sort of releasing these apps, I mean, starting out, like you said, it was sort of for your own personal use and then and then you kind of dabbled in pushing them out to the store uh what was the sort of initial success of those apps or was there even a goal of success or was it just you wanted the thing out there and then how has that kind of changed over time um i still remember my first app putting that onto the app store and then like trying to keep track of each download like <laughs> i'd log on to app store connect every five minutes and then see every new download and like get excited over every single one which I wish like I still got to do because th- that felt so good. Like just being able to see every single download that came in, um, just seeing the numbers rise. It'd be nice to have like a little dashboard in the room of just these updates happening as they come along. But I wish App Store Connect was way more real time for that to happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the initial success was kind of, very low compared to today's standards but it still felt massive back then like my first app got about 
200 downloads in the space of about a month. And these days I get that for one of my apps per day, I'd say. So it's not great right now, but it's still way better than what it was back then. And having a lot more apps in the app store right now means that the numbers add up a lot quicker as well. Right. Compared to back then when there was like way less apps to actually look over. And each one of those kind of um, led to their own like paths, which some were really successful and some weren't at all. Like my Reddit client was liked by a lot of people, but um, all of my other apps, they kind of didn't really sell any units. So I kind of just took them off the app store because it just wasn't worth keeping like a big catalog, which kind of looked messy as well. Right. So I like to streamline my portfolio in a way that shows what I am as well. And all of my apps right now on the current app store, they kind of show um, the apps that I like and like working on as well, rather than the things that were there before. So it's kind of a natural progression. And it has gone from being very low in success to being something that's picked up regularly by different news outlets um, and uh, tech journals and sites like that, like 9to5Mac and uh, Mac Rumors, which are great sources for getting the word out there to other people. But like these kind of things, I wouldn't have ever imagined being on any of those sites when I started out because they were just things I would like read every day and just see other people's apps. And it just never occurred to me that it was possible to be on that and um, spread the word through that as well. Like it seemed so unattainable back then, but as the days progress, like it's more and more attainable to do all the things that were hard to do back then. And it has been a natural progression. Like nothing has happened overnight yet. Um, like each day, sales get slightly better or slightly worse. There's no day where sales are like massive changes. But yeah, like progress is always being made. So what would you say is, I, I'm sure it's a, a whole bunch of different things, but what's kind of the, the big things that have changed for you over time? Because I think a lot of people do like to focus on, understandably, the sort of came out of nowhere and got a whole bunch of press uh, things. And I think those are rare and that's a combination of, a whole bunch of different factors, a large one of them being luck, right? Um, but I think that way more people are probably in the same boat as you, where it's like you're sort of slowly going to grow over time. And I'm curious what, like, what are you doing today differently? Is it just the profile that you've sort of built up over time? Or are you doing things pretty actively differently than you did back then to kind of get more attention and build an app that's maybe usable for more people or whatever? Yeah, I feel like luck plays a massive part in a lot of these things because, yes, the effort is there and you try every day to get the word out there and to make your app a little better. But no matter how good your app is, it won't get seen by anyone if you don't do the press side of things. And no matter how much you do the press side of things, that won't get seen if the correct people aren't seeing it. So there's a whole kind of route of you got to put in all the effort and then hope that the luck kicks in as well. So it's kind of been growing followers on Twitter, hoping that the right people see it, um, reaching out to the right press contacts, hoping that they're kind of awake to see it as well. Just little things like 
timing things and making sure that um, when you launch a product, it's done at a time that doesn't clash with anything else. Like I was pretty close to launching Cosmic Cast when the um, uh, Magic Keyboard got announced. So that was oh, yeah. close with that. And I didn't want that to clash. And there was all the rumors about the iPhone SE being launched in that week as well. So I kind of didn't know when to launch, but you kind of just have to take the plunge as well and see what other people are saying and kind of gauge the market. Um, it is a lot of luck because I don't think I've taken any steps that are different to what other people have advised to do, um, such as reaching out to the correct press contacts, emailing people, um, trying to post um, regular videos about what you do as you go along, um, just trying to refine your app and push out frequent updates. These are all things that a lot of people tend to do, but I think it does rely a lot on who sees it more than anything else. And if the right person sees it, then it could spiral into something a lot bigger. And I've kind of been lucky in that sense that a few of my followers are like high profile enough to spread the word much more than I would have been able to. And that's kind of been really helpful. That makes sense. So it's, it's, it's luck. Yes. But like, it's not one big lucky moment. It is a lot of persistence and work with lots of moments of luck sort of peppered in. And because you keep being persistent, you keep getting those or are able to capitalize on those, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Like, both of those things go hand in hand and you need one to make the other one work. And being persistent is probably a major part. Like if you only put in the effort like one day of the week and don't do anything for the rest, it could probably still work out amazingly, but maybe that day wasn't the day something gets seen. So it is about being consistent and putting in constant effort, but we all need a break as well. So right. really sure. <laughs> Uh, so something, one other thing before we get into Cosmicast, uh, that's sort of related to having all these apps. And if you don't want to talk about this, I totally understand, but you've talked about multiple times on Twitter, how there's sort of this like following of people who, uh, every time you release something or, or post something to Reddit or something like that, uh, there will be a series of a couple people in the comments who are just like, beware of this developer. They never support their apps. They just release something that's really pretty and then abandon it right away. And I like you've talked about it a little bit. Um, I can say from personal experience as somebody who follows you and sees how much more work you put into all of your apps than I put into my one app. Uh, it kind of like hurts me. And so I have to imagine that that kind of, that kind of, gets to you to a degree and i doubt that those people are listening to this show but i'm just i'm really curious like one like you know what do you say to that and then two how do you how do you deal with something like that or or is there something you can do about it oh man yeah definitely that kind of does get to me and i know it shouldn't but it's one of those things that when it's done repeatedly it will affect a person and it happens often enough that these days I just try to ignore it more as, as most as possible. Um, dealing with that has just been ignorance more than anything else. Like before I used to answer every single comment and try to reason with people and see why they would say that. But these days it's not really founded in 
anything true either because um, most of the complaints are just that I don't update my apps and um, I abandon them. The abandoning part, kind of, yes, because um, as we talked about, there are some apps in the past that I've uh, stopped um, pursuing, especially one called Bluebird, which was a Twitter client, um, which I stopped um, selling because uh, the Twitter APIs changed um, about a year and a half or so ago, which um, kind of crippled all third-party apps and uh, made them mostly unusable. Like just the timeline feed would be usable and that wasn't really much use to anyone. Right. So I had no choice really to stop um, selling that. And that was something I kind of communicated across on my socials and other places as well. And um, people will obviously still be hurt that the app that they once bought isn't there anymore. But then again, if they had bought it already, it should still be on their phone anyway. Um, yes, they won't get new updates, which um, won't get worked on because that doesn't exist anymore. But at the same time, um, the apps um, had to kind of be stopped. And regarding updates, I do kind of update my apps as often as possible. So I'm working on it like as frequently as I can throughout my days. And um, all of my apps across the line that are currently on the App Store, like probably the last update on the oldest one is about two weeks ago. And they're frequent enough that it's about a week apart. And each one is lengthy enough that it's not just like minor bug fixes and changes, which a lot of other apps tend to do. Yeah, that that's why I said it kind of gets to me personally. Uh, because <laughs> one, it gets to me personally because, you know, I have empathy for a person who I respect on Twitter. But also it gets to me personally because <laughs> I know how often you update even your most uh, sort of unloved uh, apps on the store and then <laughs> when i compare it to how much i update dark noise it <laughs> it doesn't look good on me let's put it that way and so it's, it's sort of this like ouch like man <laughs> if you're considering this app to be deeply unupdated then like i don't know what you it, it, yeah i don't know it it's just a it's a frustrating thing and and i have empathy for users at the same time right because from their perspective you know, they're used to apps uh, built by giant companies where they're making their money, not from, you know, the app itself. Like most of the time they're free, right? Um, and they're used to those updates that are that are done by giant teams of people at these big companies and they come all the time really fast and free. And here they paid, you know, a whopping, you know, $2 or $3 or $4 for an app. And so they invested in that thing. And in their head... They want that to be that this thing they paid for should be moving faster than this thing that they get for free from this other company. And so I wouldn't expect users to, to have thought through or understand all the deeper mechanics of how that stuff works. But, but it's very frustrating because I don't, I don't know how you properly communicate all of that context to people at, at a broad scale. And once, once things kind of turn, uh, it seems like, then you get these comments and then they can like compound on each other and it creates this sort of, I don't know, frustrating thing, which you seem to deal with very well. And I really respect you for that. Um, but I, it frustrates me at least. Yeah. You made a really good point there about um, how big companies will push out updates frequently and they're the ones that are usually most prominent on the app store. And that's what users are, are used to. Um, 
it's really hard to communicate across the users that it's not just big companies that make apps. Like a lot of us are just one man bands and people that are just like them, are like not much different either. And communicating that across is pretty hard because even if we do it on the App Store notes, that will probably never be seen because most people leave their apps um, to auto update. So they're never coming across that. Right. Um, we won't do it through app store, um, through app banners because that's just annoying. Um, can't do it through Twitter mainly because um, then it kind of looks like you're just bashing on people at, uh, as well. So there's no real medium to say these kind of things out on as well. Um, we just kind of got to trust that the users have some sort of empathy and see that... Um, the stuff they're getting is worked on by real people. But yeah, I kind of just wait on support emails and then try to respond to those as nice as I can. But those are kind of rare as well. And a lot of them tend to go through App Store um, ratings instead. And right. um, they leave negative reviews, which um, you can respond to, but it's not like a two-way channel where it's like a message board or something like that where you can kind of Exactly, yeah. So I wish Apple had uh, something in place where you could talk to customers, but also at the same time, that would open up a whole other kind of worms as well. Right, for people using it for promotion or something. <laughs> yeah, and that, that would get abused quite a lot as well. So it's good how it is right now, but at the same time, it could be better. There's no real way to deal with customers like that from my own personal experience because they're kind of hell-bent on proving their own point across and trying to educate other people. Like, in their head, they see it as them saving other people from something. And that's kind of hard to stop because then I become the enemy to a mass of people. And that's kind of a weird state to be in. Yeah. I wonder how much has to do with the fact that you you do release a lot of apps. So like, you know, despite the fact that you are still pushing out updates for, for all of your apps that are out in the store, uh, I can maybe like, there's like a feeling that, Oh, you've, you've abandoned this app now because you're putting out a new one. Um, because that seems like that's less of a common thing. Like it used to be iOS developers would have multiple apps in the store and you'd kind of throw things out and see what stuck. And it was sort of this like playground for innovation. And a lot of the apps you downloaded wouldn't really take off both from the user's perspective. Like they would download it and then they might not use it very much. And from the developer perspective, like they might build it and then nobody really uses it. So they kind of move on. And it was this place where we could all just sort of play around with this new medium of touch. But it feels like we've moved into this era of indie devs where a lot of indie devs now will release one thing and try and make that kind of their thing. And they'll, that's why subscriptions, it feels like make a lot more sense in those cases, because it's like, you're sort of building not just a product, but a business on top of this one single app. And that's kind of your thing. And maybe you have a spinoff app, you know, you have dice by Peacalc or, uh, uh, Oh shoot. I forgot what it's called, but the, the Halide, uh, spinoff oh, Spectre. specter yes which is fantastic um but it's like in your head they're not abandoning their core apps like these are their side apps right whereas you're sort of taking the more like like i keep bringing up uh, underscore david smith approach of like 
you're trying out ideas and seeing what sticks. And when you come up with an idea, like in the case of like Fabula, which is a basically just a, a way of sort of quickly viewing and, and getting your head around uh, different like core animation concepts, right? Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yeah. That seemed like it was just sort of an idea for you and you threw it out there because you thought people might like it. And that probably isn't going to turn into a whole business, right? That you're going to support your whole family on going forward for the rest of your life or something like that. It's just an idea and you throw it out there, but maybe because your, your sort of marketing focus is shifting over these apps as you release them, it gets in people's heads that you've abandoned their older app that they're still using. Yeah. You've managed to articulate it really well. And, um, I, I agree with pretty much everything you said over there. Um, it is something that kind of depends on the mindset and the business model as well. So a lot of people do only focus on one app and try to force that into their entire livelihood, which is great if it works, but it won't work for a lot of people. And you kind of have to throw something on the wall and hope that it sticks, especially like if you're just starting out, which is what I used to do with my apps. Um, as time progresses, um, a lot of apps, you, you start to learn what apps um, work better on the app store. And this is probably what most people tend to do with their first app and try to gauge the market and see what would work on the broader spectrum. Whereas I was doing the opposite and trying to make something that would just work for me rather than for others. And that's kind of where I wish I'd spent more time focusing on the business side of things rather than just making things. Because like once I've set a price and set something out there into the app store, I can't really change that now. Um, like there was this whole thing about where I changed my pricing model for one of my apps. Um, that caused a lot of unrest because people had paid for something before and then I made it free with in-app purchases. And that shift kind of annoys users who have already paid for something because now it's a free thing. And people who have to pay for an inner purchase will feel annoyed that they couldn't just pay like a one-off price. So you can't really win them all over if you're trying to change from one to something else. And um, starting off on a good like kind of step will allow you to take all the other steps in a way that like doesn't trip you up either. And that kind of was my mistake where I haven't thought about pricing models and business um, oriented approaches. So that's something I definitely need to do going forward. But yeah, I think that is to do with the mindset as well. Like a lot of developers um, tend to release um, things and then keep that updated forever, which is great. But it always feels like how are you managing to live on that one thing, which is where like subscription models comes in. <laughs> exactly. Because we don't have paid updates as a thing that you can do in the app store it's it's weird because like i like i still don't quite i think i still have a hard time comprehending the scale of the app store um and i think that's the answer for how like somebody like somebody like james thompson with peacock can have a in or a single paid upfront app that he's been running as his primary business with other things obviously for you know, a decade, uh, over a decade. And well, I don't know if it's been his primary for that long, but the point being like the people who bought it at the very beginning there, they can't buy it again. Now he does have like a tip jar in there now. Um, 
but but i think it's just the scale of the amount of people on the store if you can if you can get into this sort of upper echelon of apps that get featured a lot and get lots of press all the time um i think in one of those cases because of how many people are just on the global app store and the amount of people that you know sign up for their first or get their first iphone because you know they're growing up or whatever, you know, kids coming into the system or older people getting their first phone or whatever. I guess just that growth is what can allow you to have this for a certain amount of, for a pretty long time. But I think that only really works if you're at the sort of very top, you're the, you're a Holide or a Peacock or something like that. And then once you go into that middle tier, I don't really understand how you can maintain a single app with a single paid up front app. Um, over a long period of time. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the apps do get lost on the App Store and it's all of the same apps that keep getting featured as well. So if you've made it up to that point, then you're kind of set to carry on that way as well. And it's very rare to see um, new apps that tend to get featured in the same list alongside the ones that are always featured because like, it seems to be on a rotor from what I've seen where every few weeks you'll see a list of um, podcast apps or a list of notes apps and then probably sprinkled in there somewhere a list of watch apps that are good for nighttime um, like browsing or something like that and it's like new content is just hard to get out there to app store reviewers they have a form where you can fill out um, like whether you have something new to show them but I, I'm not really sure like how visible that is to them either and there are so many app store regions as well that getting featured in one won't guarantee another one. And some regions are way better than other regions. Um, like for example, if you get featured in China, that's a much bigger population than other countries. And hitting it big over there is much better overall because that could lead to getting picked up by other app store reviews um, and regions. And something I've noticed is that the reviews left on some regions like um, the Eastern East Asian regions, they tend to be a lot more positive, but critical in their actual review. So they'll give five stars and say something negative in the review based on how to improve as well. I've gotten Whereas, that as well. Yeah. Yeah. It seems really odd, but <laughs> it's, it's something I've only noticed for the East Asian market. Whereas in the opposite, um, like on the West, in the West, it tends to be lower reviews, but they might say something positive. And I'm not sure where that ties in and like how that ties into um, making the most of it, but it's just an observation. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So getting featured is like one of the best things you can hope to get uh, for your app if it's um, a paid or front app. Um, in-app purchases definitely seems like the way to go forward with a lot of apps these days. Uh, you mean a subscription? Oh, yeah, that's correct. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's hard to get a subscription in for something that you won't necessarily see as getting new content out of. Right. So like, if you're just making a game that doesn't update frequently, maybe just for like coins or merch in the game, but apart from that, it doesn't really make sense. Um, if you're making a video streaming app, that makes sense because you're getting new content all the time. But like 
it'd be nice to have a new sort of way of thinking of the app store where everyone gets to um, like get a free trial for something and then get to pay for it as well in a way that isn't tied in with the um, IAP um, stigma as well. Because from personal experience, I've seen that some people um, tend to avoid apps which have IAP in fear that they might be charged for it or something else, which is probably why the, um, the app store is also pushing for more prominent um, tags and um, descriptions of what the app does and how they'll be charged. But it's kind of like it stops being a thing about creating a cool thing and more about how can I just keep pushing this into other people's hands as much as I can. And it just starts feeling a bit bad at that point as well that I'm just trying to pedal what I've made um, like on the side of the street rather than just like show people and hope that they like it enough to get it themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I like... Like the two big things are, I wish I could have a a trial that you know isn't a it shows up as free in the store, but then you know you only get to use it for seven days, but you don't find that out until you open the app up. Um, but like something you know native to the store where it's like it says on the button "free trial, seven day trial" or whatever it would say, and then then I, a paid up front app could more, could better compete with other subscription based apps because, you know, if you're just going down the list of, if you just search white noise and you download the first five, because that's what a lot of people do, or at least that's what I do a lot of times. And, but you're only going to download the first five free ones because you're not just going to download a whole bunch of paid ones, uh, just to try them out. But it'd be nice if even a paid up front app could sort of join in that with some sort of native free trial thing. Um, that would be nice. But then the other thing that I really wish we had is some sort of like paid update model, which, you know, I know everybody's been asking for for forever and it sounds like that's probably not going to happen, but it would be really nice if, uh, if something like sketch, you know, where it's like, you could, you could basically have a subscription model in your app, but it's not auto renewing. And whenever it expires, you're just locked into the last version that you you were at when it expired as opposed to as opposed to just completely losing the app com- entirely if that makes sense yeah that's a really good idea and something i definitely love as well um i don't really see the app store doing that though because they keep trying to push for more content but in a way that gets to more people um and that would just limit how many people get the latest and greatest yeah but it would be really good for developers and like i understand that and i i can already hear all of the uh developers i know who (laughs) are sort of probably screaming into their headphones right now saying like you know that's long gone and subscriptions do make a lot of sense and and are a better system in all these xyz ways and and i understand a lot of that i think i think there's a sort of a disparity too between like side hustle indie developers versus people who've made it their livelihood. Because if it's your livelihood, I think subscriptions are super important and make a whole lot of sense because this is what you're working on day in, day out. But for somebody like you and me, like it makes me uncomfortable. Like I have a plan for adding a subscription concept into dark noise, uh, not to replace the, the, the current business model, but as a thing on top, because you know, if sales start drying up, how do you sort of 
shore this up so you can keep working on it kind of thing. But it makes me uncomfortable with the knowledge that I'm a person who has a full-time job that is not dark noise that also has children, right? And there might be large swaths of time where I just can't work on it. And with the paid up front app, it's like, maybe that hurts my reputation a little bit, but I don't have this moral obligation to keep adding free things to an app that somebody paid for a year ago or something like that. Right. But once somebody's paying me regularly for it, I do have this sort of obligation to keep doing stuff for it. And anytime I'm not doing that, it's like, what are they paying me for? And that makes me uncomfortable. And that is a big part of why I don't want subscriptions. It's not just me being afraid of users, which that is definitely a part of it. And I get, you know, we shouldn't be afraid of the, the vocal minority or whatever it is that people are going to say, but there's also just a part of it that it's like, I don't want this sort of weight on my shoulders that I have put on myself by asking people to give me money on a regular basis for, for an expected return of constant work from me. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, there's this exchange of trust that happens every time they uh, that a user gives money. And with subscriptions, that's like a recurring thing now. And you kind of have to give back something as well. And if that isn't there, then it does feel lacking from one side. And that's a lot of pressure to continuously keep pumping out content. Yeah. But it's one of those things where a lot of other apps do it already. So it kind of makes it okay. But we're all going into this kind of um, race to the bottom where everyone's just trying to get the worst of things in, in a way that works out best for long-term business. And like, I wish it was possible to reset the app store to the days where paid apps were acceptable and it wasn't all just freemium, but we kind of do have to get with the times as well. And it seems to be that subscriptions are the way forward, even if a lot of people don't necessarily like them. Um, and the point you made about there being a disparity between indie devs, that's something I've seen a lot as well, where the term indie dev seems to be clumping in a lot of different kind of developers, where the, some people are just like us two, where we're like um, single developers working on our own side projects. And then there are other people who are kind of bigger teams working on bigger things, but they're not necessarily a company yet. Right. Or they're a single person, but this is their full-time job. Yeah, exactly. So there's so many different levels to this as well. And it's quite hard to lump everyone into the same thing when you mean different things as well. So I think there's going to be a shift in the app store soon. Yeah. Well, and part of the thing with the app store too is the glorious thing of having a shared store experience where we're all just providing metadata for this one experience, uh, which means we don't have to do all this work to build our own, you know, uh, client facing websites and point of sale systems and all that stuff. Um, but it also means that, you know, my app and your apps uh, look the same on the store to, you know, things three by cultured code or uh, Gmail or YouTube. And so from a completely from a user's perspective, like they don't, they don't know 
uh, whether it's a team of people or, or a single person. I think really the only thing we have to help that, um, not that a whole lot of people probably even see this, but you know, whether or not you have a company name or your developer name in there, I think that is at least something of a signal to like help signal to people that you're, you're this one-off person, but, but unlike, you know, a website where it's usually pretty obvious uh, just based on the design of a website, whether it's sort of a small indie team or an independent person versus a big company. On the App Store, we all look the same. And so when the user hits buy or get and sees the in-app purchase or whatever it is, uh, that exchange of trust is with a sort of un- completely unknown party. And I think that can probably add to that sort of feeling of disparity uh, that the user gets between different apps. And I have no idea how you solve that, but yeah, I totally agree on that. Like, there's no real way to solve it, but we can just kind of keep reminding people in our update notes as well. But then again, most users don't even see that. And yeah. a lot of the time, they'll just browse the f- uh, front few pages of the App Store and download from there. So tapping through is something that probably will never get seen either. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I guess I'm just throwing a whole bunch of questions out there with, with no ways of answers. Uh, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh ostensibly i brought you on to talk about your new app uh, cosmicast uh which we should definitely talk about even though i'm <laughs> as is always the case with these episodes i'm already over on your time a little bit but i want to give you at least the opportunity to to explain that app uh and talk a little bit about that so so let's just start with uh, what is cosmicast yeah so cosmicast is a podcast player with a kind of semi-skeuomorphic or some people call it neumorphic kind of turntable vinyl aesthetic which spins as a podcast plays. So it's kind of um, a throwback to vinyl records which never really did come to podcasts but that's unrelated. <laughs> and that lets you see uh, browse and play podcasts from the iTunes app store or the iTunes store. Um, And it lets you do it in a way that's minimal and quick and easy. Um, It's more of an extension of the podcast app, but in a way that looks really nice as well. And it's got a bunch of features like um, silent skipping, uh, dark mode, um, alternative app icons, um, sleep timers, and... It's a universal purchase as well, which means it's available on every single platform, um, including watchOS and tvOS. And it's even on CarPlay, is that right? Or or it's working on, being worked on? That's correct, yeah. So, yeah, it is on CarPlay as well. That's that was another thing I wanted to bring up in the uh, the whole, you know, you don't support your apps <laughs> thing. Like, all of your apps at this stage are are universal apps at this point, right? All the apps that you have in the store, you have added support for uh, most, if not all of the different Apple platforms, right? Yeah, that's correct. So all of my apps are now supported on iOS, uh, which is iPhone and iPad and uh, Mac OS, and nearly all of them on watchOS as well, apart from one or two. And Cosmicast is on tvOS as well. So they're all on as many platforms as they could be on. Like, Fabula is not on um, watchOS because it didn't make sense for me to put that one on. Right, right. But that would have been on as well otherwise. So uh, back with Cosmocast then. 
so you you have CarPlay support, and my understanding with that is that's kind of a tricky one to get like entitlements for. Like Apple doesn't just let anybody add CarPlay support. You actually have to like apply, or somebody from Apple has to grant you you know uh, a heavenly scroll that gives you access to the CarPlay APIs. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So I had to reach out to Apple via some form that was kind of obscure and hard to get to. <laughs> and then from there, um, it kind of sends an email off to someone at Apple and they respond back in about three or four days with um, a notice saying that they've added the CarPlay entitlement. Um, this isn't something you download, so it can't really be shared or anything like that. They add it directly to your account, so it's there when you log into um, the developer portal to see your um, certificates and identifiers, and then you can add that to all your provisioning profiles, and then regenerate them, and then they're automatically there in Xcode as well. Huh. And the email also includes like a link to a PDF on how to um, use their APIs for CarPlay. So the, the documentation is literally a PDF. <laughs> Yeah, wow. and that wasn't really accessible on their website. <laughs> so it is kind of like a walled garden in that sense. So it's pretty limited, right? Like, I haven't been able to test your app with it yet, but uh, like, I'm assuming you weren't able to do your rotating album with the little arm that comes across in CarPlay. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So it's very limited. It's more like a list of items and you just get to populate that list. So it's hardly any UI elements. You just get to put in the data. Um, the UI is pretty much the same across all CarPlay apps, and you can't really change that. Yeah, I assume that's like a safety thing. Yeah, and they've got to make a scale on a lot of different um, CarPlay devices as well. Um, I've seen some that are oh, really long yeah. and wide, and some that are short. <laughs> that makes sense. So yeah, there's that as well. So what made you want to do a podcast app? Are you a pretty, like avid podcast listener um yeah kind of so i've kind of been getting into podcasts over the past year or two where i've just been listening to them on my commute uh, commutes on my way to work it's not something i really listen to at home but i do listen to them a lot when i'm out and about it's great like filler noise um without having to listen to the same music again and again and you always end up learning something new as well with most podcasts so it's great to have it on in the background so I kind of wanted to do it because I wanted my own podcast app, which let me do all of those things without um, the overhead of um, Apple's apps. And I found something really annoying with Apple's apps where it just downloads everything. And it's, <laughs> yeah. it's hard to turn that off and disable that. And that was taking up a lot of space on my devices. So I just went and deleted everything from the stock podcast app. And now I just like um, listen to what I want to listen to rather than downloading it. But a lot of users do prefer downloading content, so I added that in as well as an option. So I'm kind of trying to balance between making an app that I want to use every day and something that other people want to use every day as well. So that's where like loads of options and settings start coming into play. And that's something I'm working on right now as well, a dedicated settings screen. And hopefully that will give users a lot more like fine tuning to what they can do in the app as well. Yeah, it's interesting because you, you sort of entered a, uh, a space that's very heavily represented, uh, not just by lots of apps, but by, you know, a couple very high profile apps, including even one by Apple. Um, and so 
I'm kind of curious how you decided to like approach that and how you tried to differentiate. Um, I can say from my perspective, I think the, the, the spinning album art, uh, with the arm that kind of comes across. And I think most importantly, using the term, uh, semi skeuomorphic in your, in your sort of marketing copy, I think that was kind of genius because almost every article I saw written about it, use that term and like i'm projecting a little bit here but i'm gonna guess that that specific thing caught a lot of people's eyes as like oh this is like a fun throwback to to a a thing that we all kind of love but you didn't do it you didn't like replicate an ios 6 podcast app you just did it in a it feels like a modern app but it has these sort of elements layered in um and so that that was kind of a cool way to differentiate but once you have that how do you like move the product forward, I guess. Yeah, so that is definitely what I tried to sell my app as, um, something that looked really good and um, brought about a feeling of nostalgia to some extent. Um, Like from the get-go with most of my apps, I tend to try to catch um, the user's eye in some way or the other because if they don't like the look of something when they first glance over it, they're probably not going to stick around much longer. So I needed something to draw them in. And for me, that revolved around the turntable. Haha, <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, well, so everything revolved around that. And a lot of people keep asking why I didn't use uh, cassettes and a more like podcast-based approach, uh, similar to what um, they did with iOS 6 with the podcast. Um, I think it was iOS 6, or it was probably way before that with the podcast app. Well, iOS 6 was like the, the last of the uh, the skeuomorphic era. So I think we all just ascribe everything to iOS 6. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. So that was something a lot of people asked why I didn't do it that way. And honestly, it's because I didn't think about it. <laughs> <laughs> I wish there was like a more profound reason. I mean, but I think it would have it would have felt like you were copying something as opposed to making something new. Yeah, that's true as well. So, um, Elvin on Twitter made a an iPod click wheel um, app recently, which got a lot of attention and press as well. And that was really cool. Oh yeah, Elvin. <laughs> yeah, and that was something a lot of people enjoyed because of its nostalgic elements. And I feel like I was kind of influenced by that because I wanted a callback of some sort, something that people had fond uh, memories of. So the vinyl metaphor kind of made sense there because it's something I could create artwork for and still display on the cover without um, like having to make it too small either. Like right now I'm trying to make it um, tilt with the phone's tilt as well. So oh man when you tilt it the shadows and stuff will tilt so that would be cool to get in but these are just like little things that will enhance the user experience but it won't really enhance the podcast app it'll just enhance the face of it i'd say but but then again that is what draws users in so i'm kind of focusing on that right now and going forward i am adding that as well well and it's something that you can focus on that the big players like you're not going to be able to compete on features for a while just because of how long 
you know, the Overcasts and the Castros and the Apple Podcasts have been around. But you can compete on your own personal stylistic design and little flares. And so it, it's kind of interesting to see, watch you sort of prioritize adding features in that are important to people. But also, I, I do think it makes sense to be prioritizing uh, these little, you know, uh, J Penguin uh, style app flourishes that you're sort of known for because that is a way for you to differentiate and it's a reason why i mean it's a reason why i open a lot of your apps a lot of times just to kind of play with the interface yeah that's actually a very good way of looking at it that's kind of all i really have going for me at the moment because yeah as you said with features i'm very far behind and competing with the big players is just not going to happen like in the short term so all I've really got going for me is the design and the micro interactions and all the little things that are sprinkled throughout, which you don't really notice until you actually start using the app and playing with it. And that's why I try to like post videos about the app as well on Twitter every now and then so that people can see the animations and um, little things sprinkled throughout the app, which you won't necessarily be able to see with screenshots or um, just describing the app at the face, um, at like face value. Um, yeah, so I kind of just do have to rely on design for the most part. And seeing as I, I do tend to focus on it with all of my other apps, it makes sense to make something that kind of follows that pattern as well. But but you have been adding features like since it's come out. There's been a couple. You mentioned it earlier, but you you added a silent skipping feature, and that i i have a hard time comprehending how you added that as quickly as you added that because in my head you know i've been listening to atp and listening to marco talk about development of overcast for a long time and <laughs> it sounds like he's you know way down in the weeds uh figuring out how mp3 sampling works and doing all this crazy stuff to figure that out how did you get i mean I, you know Obviously, it's probably not to the same degree as Overcast is at this point yet. But, but how did you f- figure that out so quickly? Um, I feel like with what I do with my features, it's more like a, I just do like a first pass of everything. I try to get in every feature I had on my list at a possible level. And then next time I'll go through and improve upon that. And right now, um, silence skipping, whilst it's there, it's not the best of things because sometimes it does sound slightly speeded up in some areas and you can notice that. Um, like my implementation of it was, I'm not sure if this is the way it's supposed to be done, but I kind of just listen in for um, decibels below a certain amount um, on a timer. And then if it's below a certain amount, I speed up the podcast like four times and then revert back to the normal speed if it's back to above that trash. Uh, threshold is it doing like a look ahead of the like audio player no it's just doing it in current time okay interesting yeah so that's why it probably doesn't work as well as other ones would but it works to a degree that i can say it is skipping silences (laughs) so yeah i kind of just like skin an onion i just keep going through doing a first pass then i go through it again try to improve upon it go through it again and then see where it ends up because like most developers would um tend to like get a feature complete and then put it in and like make sure it works 100 percent, which is a really good way of doing it but i tend to push towards 
getting a wide range of features in which work as good as they can in the moment and then improve upon them later um, when they can be refined and when I come up with better thoughts about how they could be improved. And that kind of probably gives the illusion of me working a lot faster as well because um, it lets me put in more things without spending as much time on them as well. So it's kind of a balance of those things. Yeah, that's interesting. Because like, you can you can obviously imagine a version of that where that uh, backfires is the wrong word. But yeah, like you're more likely to push things out that potentially aren't the best version that they could be or, or have more bugs or something. But then the flip side is you're able to add things at a faster rate. Like you're not overspending time on things that aren't important. Because if you do something and it ends up working really well and not being problematic or buggy, you don't spend a whole lot of extra time that like the approach that probably most of us would take of sort of obsessing over one thing over a really long period of time uh, would have. So yeah, it it definitely, it produces like a different type of results with pros and cons, I guess. Yeah, I definitely agreed on that. Um, I tend to work a lot on, features that could break things like i was working on icloud recently which if i mess that up then all of the users data could get messed up and that is messy stuff to work with but like it's something i spent like half a day on which i probably should have spent a week on instead and i got that in and it seems to be working perfectly fine for like everyone who's used it um but yeah if i ever need to change that then that's going to be quite difficult because I've set it a certain way and with CloudKit, once you've set something, that's it. Like going back to something else is going to be almost impossible. Right. And you'll have to migrate all the users across and that's a whole thing again. So it, yeah, it can backfire a lot as well. But then there are trade-offs and with cl- um, iCloud support, that's something a lot of users were asking for with a lot of my apps. And that's something that definitely needed to be there as early as possible. And it was kind of an oversight on my part to not include that in the first version, but I'm glad I got that in like a week later. So it's still there like now, but yeah, it's one of those things where you got to see whether it's worth the trade-off with rushing things. And I tend to rush a lot of things, but (laughs) sometimes it it does backfire. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, with Cosmocast then, how was the release itself and like kind of the marketing leading up to it? Um, it got a lot of interest on Twitter, like a few days before release, um, when I started posting videos and little screenshots like now and then, and I wish I could kind of piggyback off that, um, in my, on my launch day, because my launch day, um, like tweet wasn't nearly as popular as all the other ones <laughs> and i guess that was just kind of to do with timing and all that other stuff right so i, I kind of wish my first um impression of that was the launch day one rather than all the other previous ones but um maybe the other previous ones contributed to a good launch anyway so i can't really tell yeah i think it's like what you were talking about earlier where uh timing is so much so important so like it could have just been that the time that you posted the launch tweet there was something else big going on or the algorithm for whatever reason decided to bury it and you got lucky on the earlier one and so it probably is good that you got that earlier one 
Yeah, definitely. Like it could have gone worse. So I'm definitely glad like it went as smoothly as it did. And it got picked up by um, uh, Guillermo Rambo from 9to5Mac as well, who ended up writing an article about it on launch day. And that helped massively with um, boosting it as well. And since then, a lot of other smaller um, publications have picked it up as well. And um, these weren't ones that I reached out to. So the ones I reached out to never got back to me. But the ones I didn't reach out to ended up writing about me. So <laughs> it's a mixed bag. <laughs> yeah. And just yesterday, um, Mac Rumors ended up writing an article, which led to probably my best day in sales. Oh, nice. Ever. <laughs> so that worked out quite well. Um, it feels like launch day wasn't necessarily the best day. It's all the other days that came after it and um, the slow like um, increase of revenue over time and then like getting picked up by other news outlets um, more like has a trickle down effect um, rather than just a big impact on day one. Um, I should have done a lot more for the bit um, for like day one because I only reached out to a few press and was kind of hoping that um, it'd get picked up on Twitter as well, but I didn't um, account for like just not um, reaching enough people out in the wild as well. Uh, there's no real way I can think of of planning a launch to be successful 100%, but like you just got got to hope that it works out, I guess. Yeah. It, and it went as smoothly as it could have. Well, that's good. Uh, I think, I think really <laughs> you can ascribe all the success you've had to your choice of uh, podcast art in your, uh, in your <laughs> screenshots in the app store. I think. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think, I think that, that actually um, reminds me of something else where um, I actually had different screenshots before I posted those ones. And when I submitted that to the app, um, to the app store, um, it got rejected for containing screenshots, which um, I didn't have permissions to use. So I kind of had to um, gather and um, get permission for different artworks that I could show in the screenshots, which I'm sure I came to you for as well. Oh, for like what uh, podcast art you have to use? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard that from uh, people who do like music apps. They have to like generate fake music album art uh, for their app store. Uh, uh, screenshots because you know they can't just use you know i don't know uh youtube or whatever uh album art because they don't have like permissions for that yeah that makes sense and like it would be a massive copyright and legal battle otherwise so i'm glad they kind of picked up on that anyway yeah yeah it's just interesting because i don't know that i would have thought of that uh beforehand yeah like it did lead to a lot of changes and having to go through all my screenshots for iPhone, all the different sizes. Yeah, iPad, especially Mac when you, de- when you support every again. single device Apple makes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it becomes quite a pain. Oh, man. Well, uh, Shahab, thank you so much for, for coming on here. It was really fun getting to talk to you and uh, take up more of your time than uh, I asked for. <laughs> uh, oh, thank you for having me, though. Yeah, it's been really good talking to you. <laughs> So uh, the one question I ask everybody at the end of the show is, uh, and I think I actually forgot to warn you. I usually warn people. So apologies <laughs> if uh, feel free to take all the time you need. But uh, what is a like person or people out there that have inspired you uh, in your work that you'd recommend other people follow? Uh, there's so many. Like a lot of the people I've interacted with in my time as an iOS developer, they've kind of shaped what I do and how I 
approach things. Um, some that come to mind are James Thompson from Peacock, um, who's like been around for a really long time and he's really helpful in the developer community as well. So he's been a great source of inspiration. And frequently brought up on the show in this segment. Uh, <laughs> so James is definitely an influential person in this world. <laughs> I'd also add um, Christian Seelig into that because his um, Reddit client, Apollo, has kind of influenced me into making my own kind of apps where I put in a lot of different areas all around the place. That's kind of a weird way of explaining it, but um, like making it as complex as possible without um, being complex in itself. And he's done a really good job of that with Apollo, like something I use probably every day. And I'd probably say like Jordan Morgan and Curtis from Slopes as well. Like those guys have been around for a long time as well. And they're, they're pushing what we can do with um, apps as an indie developer and getting noticed by Apple and um, larger corporations as well. So they're pretty cool. Um, there's so many people I follow on Twitter who I look up to, but like it's hard to come up with that just on the spot. Yeah, no, that's why I normally warn <laughs> yeah. people and I apologize, but uh, <laughs> I will... I will hard uh, second all all of those. Those are all people. Actually, a lot of those, all of those except for Curtis, uh, have been on the show. So maybe Curtis, uh, if you're if you're out there listening, uh, get in touch because we need to solve that. We need to get the not trifecta, quadfecta. I don't know what you'd call that. All of Shahab's uh, influential people need to be on the show. I think that's what that's what I'm saying. So Curtis, call me. <laughs> No, but I, I would definitely second that. And like uh, Curtis's podcast, Independence, was one of the that and um, Under the Radar by Marco and underscore David Smith, who have brought up a bunch. Those two podcasts were deeply influential for me, uh, especially on the like sort of business side uh, leading up to the launch of Dark Noise. So, uh, yeah, definitely agree with all of those all of those picks. If this was another podcast, I'd probably include you as well. But that would be a bit weird. <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, I can always use uh, more inflation of my ego. So, uh, <laughs> so thank you again so much for coming on and uh, and letting me badger you with questions. Uh, where where can people find you and uh, all of your work and your apps? Um, so I can mainly be found on Twitter at jpeguin, which is J P E G U I N. So it's like a mix between JPEG and Penguin. <laughs> one of my favorite Twitter handles. <laughs> yeah, I'm not letting go of that one. <laughs> so good. Um, and yeah, so you can find me on there. You can tweet me. Um, my apps are on the app store with my name. Um, yeah. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks again for coming on. Um, looking forward to whatever next you do uh, and downloading and just obsessing over all the little UI touches that you put into that. Thank you so much. That really does mean a lot. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to discuss the show, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Chucky C or tweet the show directly at launched FM. You can also discuss the episode with me, other listeners, and sometimes our guests on our dedicated subreddit r slash launched FM. If you like the show, I'd really appreciate a rating or review in Apple podcasts, overcast breaker, or whatever your podcast of choice happens to be. And you can find show notes and more at launch.fm.com. Launch